Greetings and welcome to another different church podcast. My name is Jarrett and I hope you are having an awesome day. I'm recording this intro early, 9.23 p.m. Sunday night. Uh, We just had a great service today, had a good day hanging with the family, had a great Sunday. Hopefully uh, you did too and hopefully you're having a great Monday. Uh, I'm excited to get this podcast in your ears. Um, We are doing a little series uh, based on the work of one of our favorite authors, thinkers, speakers. His name is Richard Rohr. Uh, It is not hyperbole to say that without him, it's possible the different church wouldn't exist. Uh, He kind of sort of started us down the path of this progressive Christianity thing. Um, I listened to him on a podcast with the comedian Pete Holmes, which might sound silly uh, because he mostly interviews other comedians and they talk about silly stuff, but they also talk about, you know, the universe and faith and religion and God and Jesus. And, um, he, the, the episode I listened to, they delve, uh, they dove really deeply into non-dualistic thinking, which, uh, changed my life. And, um, that's a part of why different exists. I think anyway, I'm excited for you to hear it. We're going to be talking to, uh, talking about Richie Rohr for a couple weeks. Um, other than that, there's not much going on right now. We're going to get groups up and running again in the next, uh, probably month to two months. Uh, and once that is ready to rock, I will let you know. All right, here's Hannah. I'm really glad you're here um, for philosophy in January, which is a thing people do, I guess. No, they don't. We're doing it though, because we're a different church. We're going to think through some of the ideas of Richard Rohr, who is a very influential Catholic philosopher and theologian. And we will be talking through some of his thoughts over the next few weeks. I promise it won't be boring, and I also promise it won't be like you drank from a fire hose of philosophy, which is what happens if you pick up one of his books. Your brain just goes <laughs> instantly. So I'm going to like translate this into normal people talk, um, and we are going to talk about all or nothing thinking today <laughs> and how it affects our faith. I'm not going to make you raise your hand and tell me how if any of you struggle with all or nothing thinking. What I will tell you is my life, I feel as though there is no other personality trait I have that has done more to make my life harder. All or nothing thinking has caused me to make huge mistakes, uh, bad judgments, hurt myself, hurt other people, withhold love from people, and most importantly, wildly misinterpret situations. It's really simple to define. It's basically our belief that only one thing can be true. And it's either 100% true or 100% false. There is no gray area. There's a completely true and correct answer for every situation. And that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? So nice. I would love to have that certainty. Uh, But life teaches us either willingly or dragging us kicking and screaming that more than one thing can be true at a time. And we know this. We know every conversation I have with people, someone's always like, well, I mean, maybe it's not all bad. Maybe it's not all good. Maybe, maybe two things are true. We've experienced this, and yet we are constantly getting stuck in all or nothing thinking. And I just don't know why we do this to ourselves. We cannot seem to remember that every viewpoint is a view from a point. We cannot seem to ever stand back and just calmly observe that we 
always have some preference or bias or need in any situation, even if it's a good one, we always have something going on under the surface. And we can't seem to remember that like some of the information is not all of the information. And whatever the sum is that we have, we're like, yep, that's it. That's right. It's either terrible or it's great. There's no in between. And I don't know what it makes it so hard to backtrack from our positions once we've said them out loud or worse, posted them on the internet. Have y'all heard the scripture verse, Jesus teaching, you must die to yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Paul echoes this in Romans when he's like, oh yeah, you must die to yourself and take all of your thoughts captive. Fun fact, my church growing up once spent six months on Romans chapter eight, if that tells you anything about Pentecostals. Um, And you know what? It did not work because I still cannot uh, take my thoughts captive. I'm still struggling with that. I don't think there's any other way to, any better way to die to yourself than whenever something is going on, stand back and calmly observe our inner drama without judgment. That literally feels like dying. And it is foundational to faith. And it's the one thing we cannot do. We can do some of it, almost never all of it. We can observe, but we are not calm. We maybe can stay calm, but that usually means we are not observing what's really going on in our souls. We are just doing life and being like, oh yes, I'm calm, everything's fine, it's fine, everything's fine. I'm so happy together, it's fine. And then sometimes we can observe, but we definitely can't do that without making character judgments of ourselves and other people. And this doesn't just spill over into our faith life, it permeates it. In our Western society, our lovely society. It, our religion is completely preoccupied with telling people what to know and what to believe. It shouldn't be teaching us that. That does not create functioning humans, let alone functioning people of faith. Religion should be teaching us how to see, not what to see. It should be teaching us how to know, how to live, not what to know and what to do in your life. But how to see a note is very complicated to learn. It requires our constant refusal to like reduce everything down to like one sentence. It requires us to really lean into the idea that more than one thing can be true at a time. It requires contemplation and prayer that's open-ended, not task-oriented. Like, God, help me with this. God, I need you to do this for me. God, save my so-and-so's eternal soul. A lot of religious people end up being really rigid thinkers. And I know none of us struggle with this ever. Only the people that are left in the churches that we came from, not us. Why? Because the church has taught them that in order to be a good and true person of faith, there has to be order, there has to be system, there has to be doctrinal purity, there has to be structures of belief. And guess what? We tell children what to see and what to believe, right? That is necessary. That's not a problem. They are concrete thinkers. I don't know if you've met a toddler, but nuance is like not their strong suit. I discovered this week that Nova thinks January is a person. (laughs) Because I kept saying when January comes, and in her mind, she was like, oh, well, obviously January is a person. And this week, she was like, January come? And I was like, oh, yeah, January is here. She's like, where? (laughs) And I was like, 
like, oh no, how do I explain time to you? <laughs> I don't even know how to explain time to myself. What is a day? What is a month? It's a thing we made up and we named it, but it's not a person. And it's here, but it's not coming. I, <laughs> we give toddlers a foundation of what they need to know because they need to know it. And then we expect them when they are teenagers or in their college years to fight it tooth and nail, right? They're like, no. I reject this. This is not what I, I don't like what I've been taught. I'm going to find my own information. Everything that you have ever told me, mom or dad or caregiver or church or whatever, I just don't feel like it's true. And they have to go make their own way. And that is also developmentally normal and necessary. And then when people are in their mid-20s and their brains stop being on fire, we kind of synthesize everything and we find a path forward. This is good. This is developmentally normal. But guess what? The church, the big C church, has kept everyone in the toddler class. Here's what you should believe. Here is what you should know. Here is where you were safe. Don't go over there and talk to strangers. They might make you believe something bad. And when people inevitably fight this and move into like the teenage years of faith, they get kicked out. They get questioned they get suppressed. Is it any wonder that deep faith seems so inaccessible to us? We have been taught to conform or leave entirely. And by the way, if you're leaving, straight to hell. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. There is no hope for you. All is lost. What is the goal of religion? What is it supposed to equip us to learn or see or become? Because in our culture, the goal seems to be some kind of moral perfection or sin management, if you will. Like we have this organizational model based on verbal debate where someone wins and someone loses. You are either saved or you are unsaved. There is no in between. Do you, uh, it's all or it's nothing. We like clarity. We like strong identity. We like fundamental truths. I cannot tell you how many emails I get being like, where is the doctrine portion of your website? And I'm like, well, there's not one. But I'm happy to tell you, we as an organization base our theology on the Apostles' Creed and also on the teachings of Jesus, and we do believe Jesus is the way to experience wholeness, and then they're like, that is not good enough. And I'm like, why? Do you want me to write you a book that I know you're not gonna read? You're gonna like just skim the bullet points and be like, I disagree. I'm like, I know, that's why you emailed me. If you're emailing me about what we believe, you probably don't like it already. This is the way we think. Like, we have to know. If it's not what I 100% agree with all the time, then I cannot be seen there. I can't even think there. And this is the way we approach God, too. Because Western Church has decided that it is our business to decide who is going where and when, and Catholics add, no, no, no. Let me start that over. Western Church has decided who is going where and why is our business. And Catholics have added when also. They're like, we know where you're going and we know why you're going there, but we're going to add some months in between until you get prayed out of purgatory. Perhaps it's like, is this the only way we think we can control people or have some safety for a precarious future as humans? In most Eastern religions, including in Eastern Christianity, like Orthodox Christianity, the goal is not moral perfection or right belief. It is harmony. 
It is living wholly with God. The overcoming of conflicts and oppositional energy and all this stuff that makes our life hard, this is continual conversion. It's not you said one time some magic words, good for you, and now we know who is going where and why and when. It is a changing of our heart from the inside every single day. It changes again, and it changes again, and every moment it changes again. And I think the teachings of Jesus are wisdom teachings showing us how to live and how to think, not what to think. They show us how to live in harmony with God and ourselves and each other, not what specific doctrines we should say we agree to. The way of Jesus is the way of contemplation and prayer. People are like, how do I become a Christian? How do I become a Christ follower? No one wants this to be said to them. Well, you should go in the wilderness for 40 days and just be quiet. (laughs) I can't even be quiet for four minutes. This is why I have this job. The way of Jesus is the way to calmly observe all of our drama, all of our emotion, all of our stuff, without judgment, but with an open heart. And that is the way to inner harmony and peace and equilibrium and connection with God. But it feels like chaos, because when more than one thing can be true at a time, we shut down, we panic, we are afraid, we are like, this is not happening, I need certainty. It seems like we're in a season of reckoning, like the church in America is dying, and that fills me with a sense of like existential dread, although I'm not sure why, because specifically the Protestant evangelical American church has never really been known for peacemaking or love for the outsider or the poor or humility or even dialogue with other people. Maybe it needs to die. The fact that two world wars emerged in a Christian Europe full of churches and theology schools, we should think about that. The fact that racism and profound social inequality and anti-Semitism were not recognized even as issues until 2,000 years after Jesus. And we're still struggling to get the message across. That is forever a judgment on our religion. The genocide of indigenous people, the enslavement of African people, it just seems not to have been a problem for most North American Protestants. Sexism was not even considered as an issue until after the 1950s, and mostly the church is like, that doesn't exist. (laughs) It's not a thing. I mean, what what else can we say? Elitism, classism, homophobia, poverty, the abuse of our earth. These are all just mostly unaddressed or not even thought of by the ordinary evangelical Christian. It seems like none of these issues count in most salvation messages. And some people have attained a beautiful life and faith and transformation despite all of that, which I think is a miracle. And I'm not listing all of that to be negative or so that we can be like, yeah, the church sucks. (laughs) I mean, sometimes it does, but it's us. Um, Or there's no kids in here, right? Okay, (laughs) I am quoting St. Augustine, who lived thousands of years ago and is a father of the church or some such stuff. He said, the church is a whore, but she's my mother. (laughs) That's not my quote. That's from one of the founding fathers of Christianity, okay? 
And we, I'm not listing all this so we can be like, yes, the church sucks. I'm saying it so that we can see the very real limitations of over-defining and over-asserting the individual self and our personal salvation. Our personally saved millions of people in America doesn't seem to matter when it comes to issues that affect people's lives. We have taken our personal salvation, we've made it about sin management, we've made it about eternal destination, but not very much about life right now. And then we have the nerve to say things like, our Christian nation. (laughs) America is no more Christian than anywhere else in the world, which is to say, not at all. Why? Why do we do this? Protestant Christians are still protesting too much to do any actual transformation of anyone. And Catholics and Orthodox Christians, which is like Eastern Catholic, and Anglicans, which is like UK Catholic, they're mostly ethnic or national organizations. They're not universal ones, like the church should be. And the cost of all of this is that true spirituality and true faith and truly following Jesus has lost out. Where do people go when they, find, when they need to find what they need? Did you know that the second biggest denomination in the world after Roman Catholic is former Roman Catholic? That's crazy. <laughs> And, you know, in America, it's like former evangelical. How can we possibly resist all of this? How can we embrace a deeper level of faith? That's what we'll be talking about over the next few weeks. But once upon a time, in a faraway land, the galaxy far, far away called Earth, we were a debating society, and people held, they argued with each other, and then they still were family. And I can say this from personal experience because all my dad's family is Jewish. Still exists. If you are Jewish, generally, there's only one or two synagogues. So it doesn't matter if you hate everyone there. It's the only place you have to go. You can't be like, I don't like you. I'm going to the Baptist church that's 0.01 miles away from this one. You just have to learn how to get along. But we haven't done that. We, our practice of talking to each other has like disintegrated into just needing answers. We don't want dialogue, we just want answers and preferably certain answers and preferably about everything. We have moved from wondering to answering, which has not served us well. This has like resulted in fundamentalism, which is common among all religions, but like let's pluck the log out of our own eye, shall we, before we start being like, yeah, and they're terrible. <laughs> this is a true story that I think is a really great metaphor for how maybe we can understand. So Richard Rohr had a friend who went and visited a monastery, a Buddhist monastery in Tibet. And there were older and younger monks who were having what's called a consequentialist debate. So the younger monks were students and the older ones were teachers. And the younger monks were sitting and they were presented over a three-year period with every single one of the Buddhist teachings. And their first task was to name and discuss every single negative consequence that could come from those teachings. And after every answer, no matter what they said, the older monks just like clapped and smiled. And then after they exhausted any possible negative implications or teachings of any kind, they then had to move on to the positive ones. What is any positive outcome that could come from this teaching? And they had to do that for like a year and a half. And after every answer, the older teachers would clap and smile. What's the point? 
to show what patient practice in actually non-dualistic thinking looks like. There was no declaration of the perfect answer or the right answer. The student is simply being taught how to think, how to weigh options and discern and see and understand the good consequences and the bad consequences, and from that field, actually advise people wisely. That same procedure is followed until every consequence has been unpacked, no matter how many days or months or years it takes. That is completely different than what we do. In our society, somebody has to win a debate. And obviously in religion, too. We have to win. The only way you can lose a consequentialist debate is to stop smiling. Can you imagine? What would religious study look like? Like, what would Sunday school or small group or, like, seminary look like if we studied that way instead? If we thought through every possible positive and negative consequence of every teaching of Jesus with a smile on our face. How many debates have you been where you were smiling? Because in any situation when our ego is invested or we are afraid or our ego is needy, it's very hard to smile. But when the truth is not our personal possession, but a gift that God has given us to learn together, it's really easy to smile. Dr. Phil used to have a famous line, don't judge me. I love bad reality television. Also, I love that there are people in the world who have like knocked down, drag out fights with their partners and they're like, you know what would fix this? National television. <laughs> These people were fighting usually for like years and they're like, Dr. Phil, you're our last resort. That may be the, one of the problems in their relationship. But Dr. Phil would be like, okay, so um, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? And a shocking number of people wanted to be right. <laughs> And then he would say, and how's that working for you? I think in some point in our history, in our lives, we need to ask the same question. Christianity, how is this working for you? Jesus never said, this is my commandment, thou shalt be right. But it's the only way our dualistic thinking, our all or nothing thinking knows how to frame faith or reality. It is not working. Perhaps we should be wondering instead. Here's some things I wonder. I wonder why the major religions of the world never seem to produce very many active peacemakers. I wonder why atheism is actually most common in Western Christian cultures. And formerly religious people are the most religious at being anti-religious. I wonder why we seem to close down any discussion that like threatens us or makes us nervous by searching for like one single thing to prove our point that might help us just like dismiss or doubt what the other person is saying. We're like, no, no, no. New information, no. Character judgment instead. I wonder why the reasons for most of the wars in history, which seemed so compelling at the time, later generations are like, I'm sorry, you did what? You were fighting over what? I wonder why people get so attached to political parties and habits of thought that they will vote against their own self-interest and even their own cherished beliefs 
I wonder why so many people, including me, have a clear idea of what we are against and not what we are for. Why do we celebrate people who never change their mind or show any flexibility? Why people who hate religion, why do they attack it with the same fervor and dogmatism found in religion? What do you wonder? What is it that keeps us from reading reality truthfully, humbly, helpfully? Why do we, including people at the highest levels of church, education, state, get so trapped in our rigid beliefs? We have learned a pattern of thinking that can only get us so far. We are stuck in toddlerhood. We're like, it has to be this. January is a person. And God's like, I'm sorry, that's simply incorrect. And we're like, no, I was told by people or the internet that this is true and this is the only thing that can possibly make sense to me. And God is like, do you understand? If I'm infinite, then the amount of things you can know is infinite. Mature faith has a different program for processing really big questions like life and death and love and God and suffering and infinity. And sometimes we call it contemplation and originally the word was simply prayer. What is prayer? What is contemplation? It's the idea that all saying, all speaking, has to be balanced by unsaying, no speaking. All light has to be informed by darkness. All success has to be informed by suffering. Without that balance, religion gets arrogant, exclusionary, and even violent. We have to live in the sacred gift of the present moment. And it will teach us how to actually experience our experiences instead of just surviving them. Pure presence lets things be what they are. Y'all set like words for your year. Did anyone set the word present? Yeah. When you can be present, then you will know the real presence of God. John 14 17 says, you already know. The spirit is with you and the spirit is within you. Y'all can come back up here. True spirituality is not a search for perfection. It is not a way to manage sin. It is not a way to control our bodies and force them to fit some kind of predetermined mold. It is not a door into the next world. True faith is a search for wholeness and union with God now. It is to experience the presence of God now. It is to hold a hope in our hearts that cannot be dimmed now. It is for this hope to actually transform how we think and live our lives now. Not some glad day when this life is over and we fly away. (laughs) Fly away to what? What if heaven is more of this? And God's like, you did not learn your lesson. (laughs) I'm going to give you more chance to work on your communication skills and your interpersonal relationships. And we're like, no, God, how could you do that? He's like, well, I gave you, I don't know, 76 years. And you instead were like, I have fundamental truths. And I have Facebook. So I'm fine. Everything's fine. Romans 5.5 says, our hope is not deceptive. 
The love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. That is what our sacred scripture says. The love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that has already been given to us. But Catholics and Orthodox make the Holy Spirit depend on membership and sacraments. And Protestants make the Spirit depend on a personal decision and some magic words or a faith technique you can muster or master. In both of those cases, it puts us back in charge. We are in the driver's seat. We are happily living in our illusions of control. Hear me, please. If you don't hear anything else I say, hear this one phrase. There is nothing you can do to earn or get the Holy Spirit. There is nothing you can like make yourself do in order to attain that feeling of like God bubbling up inside of you and overflowing. It's already there. It has already been given to you as a gift. Don't try to believe in the Holy Spirit. Practice drawing from the deep well inside of you. Practice sinking into the space where God lives instead of surrounding our minds with so much constant noise. And then you will naturally believe just like you naturally breathe. You don't have to tell your body to take a breath. Sometimes when we're anxious, we're like, okay, I take a breath. But like mostly you just do it. Mostly your body's like, oh yeah, I do it. I breathe. If I, your brain knows if I don't breathe, I will die. It's not a conscious thought. We don't have to consciously think about belief in God. God is already there. We have to draw from the well where God is. And at the same time, this is even better news, there's nothing you can do to lose the Holy Spirit. You can neglect the gift and therefore not enjoy God's wonderful, mm, what's a good word that's not a church? I was going to say fruit in your life, but it's so Pentecostal. We can neglect that space where God is and never think about it and and reduce God to just some words on a page and never practice really thinking and sinking and being in that space with God and we will not experience healing. We will not experience the belief that comes as naturally as air in our lungs. Faith is not magic words. It is a letting go. It is falling into God. And once we fall, we discover that God is somehow both a bottomless abyss and a secure foundation. That is weird. It is weird because they're not opposites in God. Faith is like being carried helplessly into an infinite scary mystery and being utterly and warmly held the whole time. What we are searching for has already been given to us. We didn't find it. It found us. When we can be present, then we will know the true presence.